Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Fendergast blows the whistle? It's official. Canada 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's the Northern Football Podcast, episode four. I'm Peter Galindo. He's Thomas Neff. Uh, we are here towards the end of a busy day with Canada's squad for World Cup qualifying finally unveiled. So we're not going to waste any time with any pleasantries and just dive headfirst. John Herdman, of course, unveiling that 24-man squad to face Bermuda and the Cayman Islands on Tuesday morning. Uh, the big news from that announcement is Alfonso Davies making the cut while Jonathan David did not. Herdman confirmed basically what we'd all heard in the build-up to this in that they couldn't arrange a return, a clean return, for David from the quarantine, the private flights, all that stuff. So that led to him staying in France. Uh, Jonathan Osorio picking up a late injury leading to Jaden Nelson's call. Scott Arfield, the captain, also missing out despite... Rangers already wrapping up the Scottish Premiership and being knocked out of the Europa League. And here's what Herdman had to say about Arfield's somewhat complex situation. He's, he's been pretty vocal about his motivation in, in playing for Canada. You know, playing these Nations League games has, has been frustrating for him. You know, playing a lot of games against sort of in his mind. And, and he's not being um, arrogant in any way, but I think in national team career, typically you would have friendly games in Europe. You would be able to play like Jamaica is or the US. You'd be at Northern Ireland or play in Holland or Belgium. And that's part of the growth of an international player. Every game for two years was against a, a team. You're beating five, six nil. And then you get to a Gold Cup and you get one game against a, a Mexico. And, and I just think it's in people's minds, you've got to think of the motivation of these guys that are going to get on 13-hour flights They've got to leave their families behind. COVID hits and, and there's new realities there. So Thomas, with all of this said, with all of that news laid out on the table, what are your initial thoughts before we look at the squad in a bit more detail? Yeah, so this is a, this is a strong squad uh, from John Herdman. Very well done uh, by him to get such a good team and they're out in the US and Florida. He said it various times and he said it today that the reason why he has this A team pulled together for these games, uh, even though they're easily winnable, is uh, one, to build um, chemistry. Yep. Obviously, you don't want to get to uh, the World Cup Qatar and then only Canada having played only five, six rounds, the, the group together. And one of the other things he said is uh, commitment as well. He wants to see that these guys are committed, even if it's just against Bermuda on the, or the Cayman Islands. So, Obviously, some absences, uh, Jonathan David being one of them, uh, league, league 1, allowed, allowed uh, players to be released. Uh, but one of the conditions was that they had to be on a private plane. I just don't know if uh, CSA has that kind of money. Good thing to have Alfonso Davies back. Uh, but most importantly, Atiba Hutchinson back, mm-hmm. the 38-year-old. So he's going to be the captain without question. Um, he's been in great form which is good. And John Herman said uh, that today he's feeling good. So that's important. Um, I'm feeling a lot more optimistic uh, given our, our defend defender situation. 
Obviously, in the left pack position, you have uh, a, comp- a nice competition between Sam Aracube and Christian Gutierrez, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to develop. And the right pack position, you have uh, Alistair Johnson, a guy that um, has really had a breakout uh, year in 2020 uh, with Nashville in the MLS. And, and then you have um, Richie Larea. Uh, so those two guys are competing for the right back spot. Gutierrez and Aracube competing for the left back spot. Unfortunately, uh, Scott Kennedy couldn't make the trip because he's injured. Daniel yep. Henry didn't uh, come back from surgery uh, quite yet, so you lose on those two guys. Nice to see Ricardo Ferreira. Uh, first call for him. Unfortunately, right now he's unattached, um, but I think that shouldn't be for too long, given that he has a lengthy resume in the Portuguese league. Uh, so she, he should be back uh, uh, soon. Yeah, Steven Vittoria is playing um, consistently also in the Portuguese league, so Although I am opposed against his age, being, you know, 34 and all. The goalkeeper situation, uh, Milan Borian, Maxim Kripo, and Dane St. Clair. You know, this is interesting. I remember when Milan Borian went down and many people, including myself, were very worried about the goalkeeper situation. And it's not the case anymore. Uh, we have great depth. Maxim Kripo is more than capable of stepping up. Dane St. Clair as well. James Pantamis, who's doing quite well in the U23s. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, overall, I'm, I'm very pleased. Unfortunately, no Scott Arfield, as, as John Herman said. Not just him, Jonathan Osorio. And uh, no Russell Tyrod, eh? I'm very quite surprised by that. Um, I guess maybe Herdman must rate uh, David Witherspoon uh, more than uh, a Russell Tyrod. Uh, great to see Stefano Stacchio. Right now, he's currently linked with, uh, with Porto. But yeah, overall, it's a very positive uh, outlook on the team so far. Yeah, all very good points. Um, the fact that Herman was able to get so many exceptions for the European players is obviously very promising because as you touched on, as he touched on in the call, getting that chemistry and familiarity back is so crucial, especially ahead of a busy June and July for the national team. Um, and considering a lot of these guys, whether they're MLS players and aren't in season or just the European guys who may be in season, but none of these guys have played together in some cases for 18 months and haven't played a game together in more than a year. So to have that is very important. For me, the other big takeaway, and I think we'll get more into this when we talk about the forwards and whatnot, uh, Herdman mentioned that Alfonso Davies' role, and interestingly enough, he was listed as a forward when the squad was revealed. Uh, that will be his role. And if you look at him, you know, listed as a forward, yeah, that's that's the role he'll, he'll be playing in this in this environment. But as I said, it, he has that flexibility. So, you know, in-game changes very quickly. He could start at fullback and, you know, end up in a wide forward position. In some games, we can operate with more of a wing-back. So, you know, for us, uh, I think he wants to be known when he wears his Canadian shirt as a forward. And, you know, I'm happy to list him there. That's no problem. But where we play him, well, you know, that always is a conversation between me and him and then what the tactics are for the game. But I don't think that Gutierrez and Adekube would have been called if... Herdman didn't plan on using Davies as a winger. Plus, there's also Liam Miller for cover, which is ideal. Uh, So I imagine they'll rotate a little bit between these two games. Um, So that's obviously very, very promising for the national team. Now, when we look at the two big takeaways from this squad, Thomas, obviously, one was mentioned off the top in Davies is there, no David. 
The other one, for me at least, and you talked about a couple of the names already, is the center backs. Ricardo Ferreira, as you mentioned, Stephen Vittoria, Frank Sturring, and Joel Waterman are the listed center backs. Kamal Miller could theoretically play there as well as a left-sided center back, the only left footer, I believe, of the center back pool in this squad. Um, obviously, with Kennedy and Henry not really being fit enough to get called up, that played a factor in Waterman and Sturring making the squad. But Thomas, these are obviously very low-risk games. So with this in mind, who do you see starting at centre-back for either or both of these matches? Well, you mentioned it there, right? I mean, Joel Waterman and Frank Sturring are there because of uh, Kennedy and, and Henry absences. For me, I see starting um, Steven Vitoria and uh, Ricardo Ferreira, the two Portuguese. Obviously, it would be great to give uh, Waterman and Sturring uh, their first cap for the national team. Um, but I think they're a bit more down in the depth chart. Uh, if Ricardo Ferreira is fit and he's playing, uh, to me, he is our number one center back. Obviously, it would be great to have him uh, right now at, at club level, but that's not the case. Look, I think that Ricardo Ferreira, just because of the lack of fitness, I, I agree with you. Uh, he probably will end up getting at least a start. It's just so complex because you look at who's fit and who isn't. Obviously, Vittoria is the most match fit of the center backs. But you have to keep in mind, too, Kamal Miller and Frank Sturring played next to each other at the January camp. And with Sturring being match fit, I would imagine he might be one of the favorites to start as well, even though he doesn't have as much familiarity with the team. But you could say the same with Ferreira. Yeah, Herdman has options and, and he is... Um, and that's good. That's good to have because... We know in the past how weak uh, our defense has been and has been a, a point of concern. Uh, now he has options, and, and when we get Henry and uh, Scott Kennedy back, uh, it'll just be better for him. Um, the midfield, I'm excited to see. Um, it's a great problem for Herdman to have. Um, you have a lot of options. You can only choose three if you decide to go in a 4-3-3. Right. Obviously, you're not going to fly Tiba Hutchinson halfway around the world just to sit on the bench. He's the captain for sure. Uh, Samuel Piet, you know, he, he besides uh, Hutchinson, he has already 49 caps. Um, so you can slide him in there nicely. Although I'd love to see Steven Ostakio. Um, yes. He's linked with Porto. Herman said that, you know, he he, he mentioned it there in his actually in, uh, in the media call that he is linked to big clubs. So I think Ostakio for me has to uh, get a cap. Get another cap, sorry. I'm surprised uh, about the inclusion of, of David Witherspoon, as I said before. Um, I'm not sure what Herman is, is, is looking at here. Maybe maybe some depth. I would like to have rather a younger center back. Uh, sorry, a, a younger uh, midfielder. But it gives you plenty of experience. Uh, Jalen Nelson, uh, he caught me off guard. Uh, I guess it was a, a club-for-club situation with Jonathan Osorio not making the, the squad. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Jane Nelson was actually in in uh, BLO's plans to be in the U23 oh, sure. uh, team, uh, knowing how highly rated he is at TFC and Canada Soccer. But great to see Theo Corbanio. I mean, he's a guy that is making the bench at a Premier League club. And when was the last time that we had a Canadian in that situation? Well, I suppose Junior Hoylet was starting for Cardiff a couple of years ago, but a young Canadian? I mean, that hasn't happened in the Premier League for a while, so 
yeah, for sure that's that's something to be to be praised. Even if he didn't end up getting an appearance, the fact he's being considered is a good thing. Completely agreed on Ostakio. He has to start this game, uh, or one of these games. And some might look at him getting called up along with Atiba, along with Samuel Piet, and raise an eyebrow. But remember that Atiba has played further up the pitch for Besiktas this season and has done really well in doing so. And this could actually fit in very nicely uh, for both of these games because he has been used as a box-to-boxer, advanced midfielder type, and he's been brilliant at exploiting space in that role, whether he's facing a low block, whether he's counter-attacking, making those secondary runs into the box that are unlocked by the forwards when they burst in there. Uh, that could be ideal against a low block, against Bermuda, where Canada has seemingly struggled at all levels. And I know we're going to talk about the under-23s later on, but uh, that is an advantage for Canada to have. Uh, Herpin did also point out that he liked how Piet looked in that more forward-thinking role with Montreal last year, so maybe he thinks about using him there at times. Uh, Worst-case scenario, he can just be that cover for Oshtakio if he really has to be, if they want to kind of lock it down a bit more. And they don't want to, you know, obviously give a team a 90 minutes. That could be good. But I think that if you were to try to find the best trio in a 4-3-3, I think that you have to go Ostakio, Mark-Anthony Kay, and Atipa Hutchinson. That gives you a nice balance of solidity and ball progressors. And really find me three Canadian midfielders who do that last job better than any of those guys. Um, and also two of them are match fit and playing regularly, so no real worries there. I actually don't have the updated numbers in front of me, but if you look at Atiba Hutchinson's deep progressions or expected goals build up per 90 minutes in the Turkish Super League this year, he's above average to good in both of those categories when you compare everybody in the uh, European midfielder database. I think he had about seven uh, deep progressions per 90, which is an absurdly good number, especially for a player who tends to play deeper. Um, and 0.64 expected goals build up per 90, which is incredible for any player, let alone a 38-year-old. That really is incredible to see. So you do have a nice solidity there, which for Herdman, yet again, as we've seen in pretty much all of these positions, is a good problem to have. But if we look up front, and you talked about Cormianu, I touched on Junior Hoylet, who's in this squad as well. We heard Herdman discussing the possibility uh, of Davies playing further up the pitch, Kyle Lahren is there as well. And curiously, uh, Herbman agrees with us when we talked about uh, Lahren's best role for the national team. Here's what he had to say about uh, Lahren's ideal position in the team, both short-term and long-term. I've always said this, you know, I've never thought Kyle is, is being best suited to that out-and-out nine. I don't think that's, that's his best position. When you see him against Besiktas playing... Um, in that role where he's he's a sort of loose wide forward and he's able to just play in those half spaces in between lines. His greatest strength is how he ghosts into the box from them deep positions. And and for the first time probably in his career, he's been able to not worry about being marked by two players and always locked up by two centre-backs. Now he's able to use his, uh, his instincts to find those those, those areas of separation, those, those gaps in the box that, that are appearing naturally now. All right, with that, Thomas, who do you see starting up front or who would you like to see up front, provided there's a 4-3-3 here? Well, I think the option is, is obvious, no? Cavallini as their center forward, uh, given that Jonathan David is out, Kyle Lahren on the right, Alfonso Davies on the left, 
I mean, it doesn't yeah. get any any more uh, obvious than that. If Jonathan David was in the squad, I think the odd man out here uh, would have been, uh, in this case, Liam Miller. Given that he, given that David didn't make the trip, uh, Liam Miller um, is in the squad. Although I could see two different combinations um, because obviously we were talking off air, Bermuda is going to present more challenges because they have a couple players playing um, at good European clubs, whether it's in the championship, League One, you know, they have some players. Obviously, just two or three players don't make up an entire national team. Right. But it does it does help as opposed to Cayman Islands, uh, almost have nobody. Um, so that's that would be my, my A team, given that Jonathan David is out. Mm-hmm. And the B team, uh, for me, I'd like to see um, Liam Miller um, because I think one of the things that Herman actually said is that the national team can uh, stock rice in the Ostakio answer, that the national team can help stock rice a player's transfer market. And I would like to see Liam Miller make the move next year to the English Championship. And I think the national team can help him do that. Um, so I'd love to see him. Uh, Junior Hall is not playing very much right now in, in the Championship with Cardiff City. I think this game, scoring in a couple of goals um, in one of the two games, could give him a lot of confidence. And given that Lucas Cavallini is the only uh, center forward, I mean, he has to start the other one. Uh, those would be my two combinations. But at the same time, it's also tricky because Alfonso Davis is listed as a forward and not a left back, which I am very happy about. I know you are too, um, that Alfonso Davis is finally playing as a forward mm-hmm. as opposed to a left back. I think we're more than covered with uh, Christian Gutierrez and and Sam Maracuba. Oh, yeah, easily, very easily. If we switch gears to Bermuda, they're not going to have their talisman Naki Wells, one of those players playing and saw the leagues that you touched on, Thomas, which is, uh, I guess, good news from a Canadian perspective. The squad is still dealing with the virus outbreak that happened, I believe it was last week, um, and actually delayed their squad announcement as a result. So we might see a shorthanded team on Thursday, uh, just kind of presenting even more advantages for Canada. You hope they take them in that regard. Just to maybe wrap it up on this segment, what do you want to see? from Canada in this game specifically. This, along with the Suriname match, would probably be their toughest of the round, quote-unquote. I mean, I'd expect nothing less than Canada beating Cayman Islands 7 8 nothing, And against Bermuda, 4 5 nothing. I think that's more than, than doable to keep a clean sheet to top the group. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. It's more of a when, not an if. If Canada gets out of this group, they should more than get out of this group, on paper at least. We're a lot more stronger than any other team. And you can tell that just by the names on this roster, Canada has um, a lot of uh, players that are committed to the national team and that are coming in for games like this. So even though it's a a one-and-a-half-year process um, to get to the World Cup, um, these games sort of give you an understanding of who will be not only your starting 11, but who could uh, field uh, against the Mexico's, uh, the USA, Costa Rica, uh, and the Octagonal should make it. And again, reminder, uh, that first game against Bermuda is Thursday. The second game against the Cayman Islands is Sunday. Both games are in Bradenton. Uh, so we shall see what happens as Canada opens up their World Cup qualifying campaign. So let's switch gears a bit. Uh, as mentioned, Canada opens up their World Cup qualifying this week versus Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. But unlike years past, these games will be played at neutral venues 
in the United States due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, indeed, Thomas. So given that nobody can really travel abroad, let alone these teams, uh, we're going to welcome in Gavin Day here, who is a freelance journalist and previously worked as a correspondent and media officer at the CSA. Uh, and thanks to his work experience, I'm pretty confident to say he's been to more CONCACAF nations than anyone else I know, at least. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Gavin L. Day. And if you want to hear more travel stories, check out his podcast newspaper on seats, which you can listen to anywhere you get your podcast. So Gavin, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I always love chatting about the adventures in CONCACAF. Adventures they are indeed. So let's uh, get into this, Gavin. Uh, first off, just for the listeners, how many CONCACAF nations have you visited, whether you were traveling as a media member or with the CSA when you worked there? I, I just quickly listed them down. I think once upon a time I had a more extensive, complete list, at least a dozen. Uh, that's Central America, Caribbean, Canada, US, Mexico. The only two in Central America still lacking are Guatemala. No, and Nicaragua. So those two are missing for me. All the other Central American ones I've, I've ticked. And then, you know, I've been to Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory. Bermuda, which is technically a, a British territory. I'm not sure the, the term for it. So uh, territories and countries. I quickly listed 15. So obviously these teams won't be playing at home. Um, what's it like to fly into, a, let's say, a Dominica, a St. Lucia? Um, what's a travel route? What sort of um, unique... Uh, flight experiences do you get yeah i mean for for a place like saint lucia i took you know there's several connections usually you end up on you know a small propeller plane small flying into a small airport for dominica which is maybe one of my one of my favorites it's a place i'd love to go back to because i just sort of got this small taste of it i was still working for the association then and we were on a charter and you know i think we were on a you know a 737 a good sized jet and it wasn't the biggest runway in the world. So, you know, I think it was more worried about takeoff than landing about, you know, whether there was enough room for a big jet like that. But yeah, it's usually you're flying into just, you know, small locales when it's those sorts of places. Uh, with Dominica, the airport was on the other side of the island from Rosso, which is the capital, which is where, you know, the game obviously was played. And then, you know, we're all piling into small buses and going on these windy up and down kind of uh, roads, which, you know, through, you know, beautiful scenery. And that's what I always love about these places. It's just breathtakingly beautiful, uh, except in Dominique, I'm focusing on, you know, keeping my stomach together, which <laughs> ultimately didn't work out so well. You never can plan for things to go as you think they will. I mean, you, you touched on it, Gavin, already, but when you do get there, just overall, I guess, outside of the match day experience, what is the experience like? What are the locals like? Um, what sort of accommodation are you in? And I guess most importantly, uh, how is the food? I know that's a lot to cover, so, so apologies mm -hmm. for that. I mean, with, when, you, when I was working with the, with the association, it was quite easy where you get a ride, you have a hotel. It's all pretty straightforward. So whenever there are the stories asking the players of what it's like in such and such a locale – they get, with all due respect, a very sanitized kind of experience where, you know, they go from a hotel to a training ground or the stadium let's or, you know, an airport. You know, if there are fans outside the hotel, which, of course, we've experienced in Panama, um, that's one thing. But they don't get out tons. 
for those of us who have covered, you know, there is time to, especially on match day, before a game that's in the evening, you have the entire day to yourself to get out, walk around, see the locals, eat the food. And, you know, so many times, a lot of these islands, there's fantastic seafood. In Panama now, I've been three times. I've been, I think I've been another time non-soccer related. But, uh, you know, there's a place I've gone to because I've stayed in places in the same area twice. Place I go to for a lovely dish called Sancocho, which is a, a stew of, you know, chicken and root vegetables, and it fills you up. And, uh, you know, that's on our show. You mentioned it. We like to say that, you know, the vast majority of the time, we can't remember much of the game. What we do remember is the travel experiences that we've had. And, um, you know, in a place like, uh, you know, Belize, where, you know, we stay in Belize City, but the game itself was in Belmapan, that was a bit of a drive. But, you know, people are, are relaxed and friendly. I think I was made an honorary Belizean once, you know, just to caught, you know, stop me on the street and just started chatting. Um, and I can't remember his name, but he asked me some question. I got it right. And he's like, you're an honorary Belizean. I went, well, thank you. Meanwhile, you go to a place like Honduras and there is more of a serious vibe where, of course, San Pedro Sula has that reputation. Um, and my first time there, we see guys with stacks of tickets just trying to sell it in the, uh, the busy town square. So uh, each experience is different. Each you know country, even though you know Spanish might be the language uh, in dominance in Central America and English in some of the, the Caribbean islands, each place has its own little quirk, its own little taste that's that's a little bit different from everywhere else. And oh yeah, you asked about accommodations. It's a mix of a lot of things. There's been Airbnbs. You know, if I if I'm feeling a little lucky or not lucky, but you know, if if I'm making a, a good amount on this trip, uh, there have been some low end hotels. It's gone so far twice. I've couch surfed, and there's a website. Wow. And and uh, in Bermuda and in St. Kitts and Nevis, essentially just crashing at someone's place I'd met for the first time. So uh, you get quite good at, at frugality. I, I love all of this. It actually makes me kind of want to go to these places now just because it's been so long since we've all gone there. But listen, if it calls to you, go. I want to quickly ask you, Gavin, just about the actual stadium experience. Just how bad is the Wi-Fi in some of these places? Maybe Caribbean specifically, just because I guess Canada's playing Caribbean teams. But if you want to talk in general, you may as well. Again, going back to St. Kitts, where I've been there once, and that was cool because the the venerable Jerry Dobson was calling the game. Essentially, we were in like a VIP tent on one side of the field, and John Molinero was his analyst. Their Their shooter was... Uh, imitating a lightning rod up on a scoreboard with his camera he was putting his life on the line and and there was a little sliver of wi-fi that you know we stumbled upon and and of course as you're about to file near the end of the game it goes out and i'll, I'll never forget the tap on the shoulder excuse me the prime minister would like an interview and i just stare this guy in the face like are you kidding me and i go without blinking why'd i go no I don't have time for this. And so I'm picking up my computer and I'm walking around trying to get enough so I can click send. You know, another time, the, the St. Lucia Stadium, I think it's the Beausajour Cricket Oval. Is it Castries? No, it's Gros Ilet. You know, there's no Wi-Fi there. I mean, unless it's, I'm guessing, match day. It's a very nice oval for cricket. Uh, for soccer, meh. And, you know, we were sitting up top. You, you know, they were calling the game. There was just an audio stream. 
and but across the street if you want to call it that it's it's sort of in this pastoral kind of area is um uh the saint lucia national tennis federation and again I, you find this littlest sliver it's unprotected and it's just that time it worked because it was a sparsely populated stadium and so that one it was just sort of you know thanking your you know graces i do actually have a portable wi-fi that i bring with me now where you pay for a couple of days and it's really quite solid el salvador just didn't happen just did not happen our seating was like in you know just like hard plastic stadium chairs and then honduras i've now been to san pedro sula four times with and without the federation it's you know i really actually quite like it now uh, i have friends there now who the airport was recently flooded by the hurricane and i checked in on people to see if they were okay but uh you know twice i've been there for youth tournaments and the wi-fi is fantastic you show up for the national team and you know there have been the two famous recent experiences where people are packed in and it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine and then forty-five thousand file in and it's gone and it you you know it's in and out and you're everyone's just sort of praying that they get the lucky moment so you know even with my portable wi-fi for the last time it just it just wasn't going through so i i don't know if it's not a requirement or what no place seems to have hard wires which would solve everybody's problem oh, yes. that's probably the biggest thing you worry about covering this sport in CONCACAF is that you know desks are probably used to prompt filing and you have to tell them i might not get this on time gavin it's just, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned couch surfing i've actually used it before uh when traveling to europe uh not quite the same hey europe taking advantage of friendly people to save myself some money but you know otherwise i wouldn't be able to go might as well take it the thing that really popped in my head is um campio.ca has interviewed um craig forrest and other retired national team members about their past experience in the region in this interview uh crazy stories uh came up uh, bus driver off riding an hour extra uh other examples include uh Penimini fa publishing uh the address of the hotel uh, for fans to go, exactly for fans to go and and put fireworks uh you get to the airport you see um army officers with machine guns fans trying to throw a piss at you in the stadium um what's the crazy story uh you've had personally craziest story i mean some of those ones i mean when i say the players have sort of a sanitized experience they do experience stuff and i'm not taking anything away from them i remember that before the the famous 8-1 game you know one of the kit men said as they were walking up the tunnel you know their fans looking above them and i think there were the the urine bags and someone even threw like an entire chicken carcass down in front of them that's the one story i was told but yeah i mean the 8-1 game there was the reputation and we were all sort of looking behind us everywhere we went. And after the game, 8-1, qualifying campaign done, people back at home undoubtedly, you know, writing the post-mortem of Stephen Hart's coaching career for the national team. Eventually, of course, that was proven right. And we were just waiting outside the stadium, you know, for a taxi. Like there was, it was pandemonium. People were driving by, celebrating, all this and that. And we were just standing. We could not get a taxi. There was myself... Kurt Larson, Neil Davidson, and Dan Girard, who used to work for the Toronto Star, you know, the thought that crept in our head was, you know, considering this was our first time, I don't think anything would have happened. But our first thought was, now what would have happened if Canada had advanced? You know, all these people celebrating seeing Canadians standing on the side of the road. I, you feared for the worst at the time, but like I said, I don't think things would have changed. 
yeah, my own sort of craziness, um, just, uh, you know, it all comes back to San Pedro Sula, which for 45,000 fans, it, it is the most intense soccer experience I've been in. And, you know, I've been to Wembley Stadium, as I said, we've been to Azteca, but that whole stadium packed in people in, in 35 plus degree weather, humidity, and packing in hours in advance. Music playing, music blaring. And then it was so packed, people are sitting in the aisles. So once we get to our desks, we're not leaving. Like we can't leave because you're navigating through a sea of humanity and you might not get back. And then you mentioned the guys with the machine guns, they're standing nearby us too. So, you know, you felt safe. We were squeezed in. And then the other time, you know, in Panama for the the World Cup qualifier, that same campaign, the month before the 8-1 game when they lost 2-0, I think it was, you know, each time Panama scored, you see it on the screen. You see the beer splashing in the air. And, oh, yeah, when when Panama scores, everybody just sort of throws their beer in the air. But I, I do think they knew Canadian journalists were back there because it felt like guys were aiming their cups back at us. So we were sort of caught off guard on the first goal. But the second one is just like, oh, here it comes. And we then, you know, put our laptops down on our desk. And then, you know, after the game, they come by and they shake our hands. They're like, you know, they point to us and they go, you, Honduras. And they do the throat slash gesture. And we're like, we do our best, guys. <laughs> you know, it's not our- Gavin, what's one country, whether it's Central America, the Caribbean, anywhere else in the region, that surprised you in terms of, wow, I never expected this in a good way? St. Lucia for it was, was interesting for one reason. And that was because, you know, there's no sort of public transit system. There are taxis, I believe, but it's not a hugely populated island. There is a series of like a number of Caribbean countries. There's a series of, you know, essentially just sort of white, a little bigger than minivans, cube vans, where, you know, they run their routes and people hop in and they pay. And so that's how um, I got to and from the airport in St. Lucia and leaving St. Lucia you know, I was packed in with all these other people going about their daily business. And I get to, you know, my stop and there's a little walk up to get to the, the airport. And I just sort of I'm like, okay, got all my stuff, except I realized I didn't have my passport. I turn around and it's just like the van is gone. You know, the panic sort of is ebbing upwards. But then within a few minutes, back it comes, door swings open, someone's holding that and they're like, you tell people we're, we're nice in St. Lucia. And I said, without question. So, you know, someone noticed it. Otherwise, I, I, I can't think of what would have happened. You know, Panama is, is, is another one that it's one of the more, you know, there's a lot of money there and it, and it shows. There's some very impressive buildings. There was a, you know, there was a Trump Tower. I don't think it's Trump anymore, but it was, you know, huge investigation about Russian money laundering. Surprise, surprise. But, uh, you know, there's now... I think it's one of the few, um, and it might be the only Central American country that now has an LRT line. And when you're, you know, freelancing, taxi costs add up. You know, getting around costs can add up. So uh, apparently, I think the new line goes centrally out to the the stadium, the Ramos Fernandez. And you know, the next time I get to go down, I'm definitely taking that, uh, saving time, saving money. Um, so it's hard to pick one because there's sort of a redeeming quality for each one even uh you know san pedro sula with the the gnashing of teeth that comes from canadian fans when you mention you you like it you like the people you know the food in honduras uh, you know the baleadas which is like a 
sort of tortilla thing with some stuff in the middle, like a lot of things in the region. It's delicious. Um, whenever I, you know, now is sort of the point where whenever I've gone to Honduras last, I think two times, I hike up to, there's a Coca-Cola sign in the mountain above the, uh, uh, the city. You actually have to go through a bit of a, quite a nice neighborhood, all things saying, some very fancy homes. And then there's a trail and you walk all the way up. It's a great hike. You see some wildlife. You're, you're deep in forest. And it's, uh, it's a stunningly beautiful country uh, in Honduras. And, you know, I know the, the president is being accused of, you know, taking bribes from drug lords. Uh, if, if ever they sort of find some stability, like you look at Costa Rica and it's a, uh, you know, it's sort of a bastion of tranquility surrounded by interesting situations going on. But if, you know, if Honduras ever gets that kind of stability, you know, it could be one of those great ecotourism places. You know, what's interesting is some people might complain about this, but, you know, you embrace it uh, in such a way that uh, maybe some Canadians, you know, might not. Um, I know I know I'm from Chile. Uh, in the case for Peter, his dad's from Peru. So, you know, we're used to these, you know, third world country, developing country experiences where you're just like, things are done at last minute, very disorganization, dis you know, th these are the things that just happen. And, and, and over there, it's, it's, it's every day. But the, at the end of the day, so much Canadian soccer media, in a way, is, is sort of lucky because they get to travel to Central America, to Mexico, the U.S. and, 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 and Caribbean in, in this case. Because to get sent uh, either by, by an organization, your media site, uh, TV, radio, whatever. Um, it's quite the experience. Um, to finish off, I want to ask you, um, Gavin, how did you start covering Canadian soccer? It was all just sort of by sort of happenstance. Um, I was actually going to start, I, I have a two-year broadcast journalism diploma from the British Columbia Institute of Technology on the West Coast. And before I went there, we had the under 20 world cup in Canada and I was accredited by my, my university newspaper in Victoria, the university of Victoria, um, just to, just to write some stuff. I'd actually graduated by then, but I wanted to, to do it and they got me in. And it was through that, that I led to my first experience covering a game for the Canadian press when there was a, a, a an opening for a couple, for one day of games. That's where I got Neil Davidson spoke with him for the first time. Um, and then that led to, uh, before again, before I I left to go to Vancouver, I covered Canada Brazil again for my old university newspaper uh, in Seattle. It was a friendly that that Canada really should have come away with a draw. Uh, that was at the beginning of the Dale Mitchell era, um, and then from there I I started freelancing or stringing for CP various events, 2010 Olympics, um, and then as I was graduating from school. You know, just pitched to a few people, including Red Nation Online, which is a, you know, sort of a pioneering sort of Canadian soccer news site. Doesn't really, they don't do much more these days, but uh, they they sort of got the ball rolling in my mind. You know, I covered Canada Argentina in 2010 in Buenos Aires. It was Argentina's last two-net game before the World Cup. Maradona was coaching, 66,000 fans uh, in the is it the Monumental River Plate's home stadium. And then, yeah, and then once I moved here after an uh, 11-month TV radio reporting stint in Fort St. John, B.C., uh, I just sort of parlayed some of those contacts that I had made into covering the, the 2014 cycle. So once I moved here in 2011, just started doing those games. I, I, I was still just starting to get a little bit of work outside of there, but that's what, that's what sort of kept me going the first couple months. And then you know, things sort of steamroll down and just sort of always being around that environment got me 
uh, yeah, they, they, they gig with Canada Soccer for a bit, contract ran out, and then returned to some freelancing for a bit. And then after the last cycle, you know, as things happen, budgets change. And then I, I, I got work elsewhere because there wasn't much much work covering soccer. So, um, so yeah, it was just, I was just there. Uh, yeah, doing some work for, for, for people. And then, you know, you meet other people and that leads to new work. And that's the nature of freelance where you, you, you have to network just as much as you get work. There's so much work just to get the work. But uh, it has led to some valuable experiences, clearly. Uh, 100%. Gavin, this, is, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, once again, you can follow him on Twitter at Gavin L. Day. You can check out his podcast newspaper on Seats, wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave them a rating. Leave them a nice review because it's a very Ooh. interesting show. And this is why we wanted to have you on, Gavin. So once again, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, guys, for having me. I mean, apologies if I rambled on. I can go on for a bit. Okay, switching over to the under-23s at the CONCACAF Olympic qualifiers in Mexico. Uh, Canada has played two games with slightly contrasting performances. Uh, They opened with a 2-0 win over El Salvador and then a 0-0 draw with Haiti on Monday, the most recent game that they played. Uh, That leaves them level on points with Honduras in Group B, three points ahead of Haiti and El Salvador entering that final game. And that final match against Honduras will be played at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on Thursday, the same day that uh, the the senior national team will open up World Cup qualifying. Now, Mexico and the U.S. also face each other on the final match day of Group A. One of them would face Canada, of course, should they advance. But Canada specifically, Thomas, what have been your takeaways from these opening two games well, the first game was very good. Canada obviously winning to nothing against El Salvador. I was asked about it in a newspaper in El Salvador, and I said that this this team had come in very prepared. Um, that a lot of names coming in from Europe uh, and a lot of players with uh, national team senior experience, particularly in James Pantamas and the defense. So good result in the first game. I think Tejan Buchanan just absolutely. Man of the match, without a question. Mm-hmm. Um, great start. Although against Haiti, um, 0-0 draw. If I'm Mauro Biello and his coaching staff, I just don't see a way how I'm not disappointed. I mean, it's not that Haiti are played bad. They played exceptional. In fact, um, the two best players on the pitch in that game uh, for me, well, obviously James Pantamis and, and the Haitian goalkeeper, uh, which is never ideal. Um, I mean, you you said it before, which is never ideal when the best players on the pitch are the goalkeepers. But Haiti are not in season, and they only have nine players based in Europe. So this leaves me questioning, well, did Canada get outcoached? Did they get outplayed? Remains to be seen. If they had won this game, for me... I would have said that they would be in the semifinals no matter what in the crossover against the United States or Mexico. Now it's sort of do or die against Honduras because let's not forget El Salvador tied against Honduras. Yes. So they're still alive. Yep. Everybody's <laughs> and, alive. And so is Haiti. Exactly. Everyone's alive. And now this puts Canada in a pickle because if they lose against Honduras, they have to lose by one nothing, And then you just hope that El Salvador and Haiti uh, don't win. One doesn't win over the other by a large margin, such as three or four nothing. Right. 
you pretty much have to take out the calculator, call the mathematician and, you know, crunch the numbers. But even then, if that were to be the case, you wouldn't really arrive well uh, with with a lot of confidence into that semifinals, just because how stacked Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico are. Although if Canada were to top the group, uh, it's a different scenario. I think Canada has some option against the United States. Now, I'm not going to say name for name Canada is on par with the U.S., but from what I saw against the U.S. in the Costa Rica match is that Costa Rica actually gave the U.S. a run for their money. Oh, for sure. And if Canada can do the same, then we have our chances. Yeah, they they do. Now, of course, they have to worry about what happens on Thursday before that even happens. But this is so interesting to me because... They've been outshot in both games so far, keep in mind. Uh, you can sort of forgive the El Salvador game because they went up early 2-0. And from there, it's about trying to conserve energy in the heat. You haven't played in a long time. Just get numbers back to cope with the press and just make it harder to, to get broken down, essentially. And I think that for the most part, they did that against El Salvador. A fair number of their shots were from outside the box and then... If needed, James Pantamus handled the rest, and he's been brilliant in both games, no doubt about it. Um, I can't remember the expected goals of that game off the top of my head right now, but I'm pretty sure it was about even with Canada slightly edging it, and that's going to happen in tournaments, right? When you have a small sample size, you're going to get luck going your way. Superior individual quality in certain areas are going to rule, and I think this is exactly what happened. Canada just executed well, and they won. Now, when you look at the Haiti game, this is where you get a bit more concerned, obviously, because on one hand, and Mauro Biello said this, that the finish and the execution just wasn't there, and he sort of talked about the discrepancies between the first half and the second half of that game specifically. Here's what he said. First half, we were able to uh, control the the tempo of the game. It created some good opportunities. Um, You know, we didn't take our chances in in the first half. I think uh, in the second half, we got a little bit too loose. Uh, and in different moments, they, they caught us on trans- in transition. And we knew that that, that was going to be their, their strength, right? So I think the second half, we, we allowed them to, to creep back into the game from the transitions. We needed to be tighter, better. I think our hunt and our DT in the first half was really good. We were able to recover the ball really quickly. Uh, and then in the second half, we were just a little bit late and uh, recovering those balls. And then they were able to get out and, and uh, you know, create some chances from there. And Thomas, that, that will happen sometimes, especially with players who are shaking off the rust. You're just not going to finish. It's not going to be your day. Um, it's just not the most timely moment for that to happen. Now, we saw in moments Tejon Buchanan taking heavy touches constantly drifting offside. I think he was caught offside six times or something like that in the game. And he was really good in that inverted winger role against El Salvador. That's how they got both the goals. Uh, When he switched to the left, driving at defenders, cutting onto his right foot, his stronger right foot. Um, So they tried that against Haiti. And had the touch been there, had the passes been more accurate and not had so much juice on them, I think we could have seen the same issues. It just did not happen. But the same can be said for a few others as well. In that first half, you saw... The Baldissimo, Bear, Buchanan connection was working in the first half, dragging that Haitian low block out of position. Godinho and Broguiar had some good crosses into the box. Baldissimo knocked in some good free kicks that they couldn't convert. But the same can be said of Haiti too, who should have scored if it wasn't for Pantamis' heroics. May, may I just say that Balut Tabla has been playing really well. It's just his execution has just been lacking. Well, yeah. 
it's been the same with everybody, right? I feel in that game specifically. Um, and then you're going to have that when you're rusty. But when you look at Hades' strategy, they went from let's sit in, tactically foul if we get caught, and just stay in this, to let's press higher, rattle them, and then play through the open space. And they were succeeding a lot in the air. And then Canada started to play more direct. That killed them in that way because then there was more space for Haiti to exploit in the midfield. Uh, they weren't as compact. Biello mentioned that they became just a little bit too loose in that regard, which is a massive problem. The other thing I will say, the Lukas Diaz made a fair amount happen in his 15-20 minutes on the pitch than Aiden Daniels did in 60-70, to 70, maybe one pass aside. Because Diaz in one sequence just completely tore apart Haiti's block and unfortunately the chance just went begging. Uh, so had that change happened 10 minutes earlier, maybe it it turns out a bit differently. So with all this said, Thomas, how do you like Canada's chances of progressing to the semifinals with that Honduras game coming up? I think their chances are 50-50 at this point. It certainly does not help that you're short of centre-back options. I mean, you're having David Norman Jr. playing as a centre-back. Uh, he's a midfielder, um, has never played centre-back in his life. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, a very, very concerning there. But, you know, if if Canada can learn from the mistakes, and I actually had the chance to ask uh, James Pantamis this, if they can clean up at the back and be more careful um, from playing out the back. So the biggest concern for me is in the first game against El Salvador, Canada played out the back, and that's very, very dangerous to do, especially uh, considering that this team hasn't had a lot of time together. But like you say, if they make the right changes, if what you learned against the Haiti game in terms of your forwards and midfielders to see who is more effective um, and if you make the changes that you need to make, for example, if I'm Mauro Biolo, I'm going to switch uh, Blue Tabla over to the to the other side and I'm going to give Lucas Diaz another chance. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Because what you say is true. I mean, in 60 to 70 minutes, they weren't very effective. And the thing is, I'm surprised Haiti didn't score. I mean, oh, yeah. Haiti, the Haitian goalkeeper made more saves than Pantamis. Uh, that is true. But the real reason is here, Haiti just didn't capitalize the way we attacked upon the field. I mean, why is Canada playing to Haiti's strengths? If you know that Haiti is good in the air, why do you keep putting, why do you keep going for headers? I mean, it does not make sense. Um, I found it interesting that Pantamis was, was shouting in English in the field, just because obviously no fans, you could hear everything. In the first game, he was he was shouting in, in in French, considering that maybe some Salvadorans could. I thought that was an interesting uh, tactic. But again, I feel like what I said in the preview of this U23 tournament has been true. I mean, the midfield is a bit thin. That's opposed to our senior national team, which is completely, completely opposite. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. I mean, there have been some decent moments, I suppose, but this is where I think you need that Lukas Diaz type who can cover all that ground and kind of make up for those discrepancies. So I wonder if he does start it in that Honduras game. Same with Zorian Basso uh, at left back, because I thought he looked pretty promising, especially going forward. And when you have a natural left back there, that just obviously alleviates so many issues. Um, but... I am a little bit concerned from a Canadian point of view for that Honduras game because they created a lot of opportunities and you touched on it, Thomas, with the building from the back and, and you know, facing the press of El Salvador. Um, Honduras created a lot of opportunities by pressing and going direct to Douglas Martinez. So uh, Honduras 
not only could exploit uh, one potential weakness in that Canadian team with the you know pressing while building from the back, but also in the air, where, and you talked about it there, David Norman, because he isn't regularly a centre-back, struggled in the air. And that's where Haiti started to really capitalize. And I mentioned Basson as well. We saw that Honduras was kind of exploiting that side, but I think with Basson there, that's not going to happen. Broquillard could be the target in the same way, I think, just because he pushes so high up. There's a lot of room to exploit there. Patrick Metcalf is going to have to continue to cover that area well if they don't want to get exploited. So yeah, it should be an interesting game uh, because while there are concerns, you feel like Honduras deploying these tactics could actually play into Canada's hands a little bit more because they might be just way more effective on the break than trying to break down a low block. So we'll see how it shakes out. I, th- I agree with you. I would like to see more of uh, Basson. In-, in fact, I was surprised what he was since why he didn't start for Marabiello. Um, I just think this Canada team is missing a guy like Liam Fraser, Theo Corbanio, and Frank Sturing. If you had those three guys in your team, I think the dynamic would just look you'd have a lot more options and it would be more steadily sound. But let's not forget, Honduras have some dangerous options, especially with Douglas Martinez of Royal Salt Lake. And they have a lot of first-team players um, playing at Olympia, Motagua, um, and Marathon, the three biggest clubs of Honduras. All right, moving on. Uh, There was some big news out of Toronto FC late last week as both general manager Ali Curtis and president Bill Manning signed contract extensions. Curtis's is for multiple years, while Manning is locked in for the next five years, Thomas. That's right. And another guest joining us on this episode is Mitchell Tierney from SB Nation's Wake in the Red. He will help us analyze this latest developments happening at TFC. Mitchell, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. So how important was it for the club to sign both Curtis and Manum? I think it was important. I mean, the, the timing of it, of course, is is somewhat interesting considering, you know, they just have gone through an offseason where they haven't made any major signings. And um, so evidently publicly, it's a, it's a little bit of weird timing. But, you know, Manning especially, we've seen what he's done with this club, really. The the club's ascendancy started when, when Manning came in um, and, and was able to, you know, really, I guess, professionalize the club and, and bring them into a new era uh, in terms of playoff success. Everything we've seen has come under Bill Manning. And then looking at Ali Curtis, I mean, you know, in his first year, he got the club to an MLS Cup final. They were pretty solid again last year. A lot of the the acquisitions he's made, be it Pozuelo, Nick DeLeon, uh, Richie Larea, have been pretty good. So overall, I think it was the right move from the club to, to lock up these two guys long-term. Again, it just it just comes at a bit of a weird time considering that what we've seen from them this offseason. Yeah, definitely true. Very strange timing, but this is a pandemic. It's all strange. Um, how, yeah, that is fair. Yeah. How would you assess uh, the work? Maybe not so much Manning, because you did talk about Manning, and he probably has some legacy points just based on what happened a few years ago. But how would you mm-hmm. assess the work that Curtis, I guess, specifically has done thus far? I think it's been pretty solid. I mean, it's obviously always going to be incredibly difficult to transition a team from, you know, the big three of Altidore, Juvenko, and Michael Bradley. And you can throw a guy like Victor Vasquez in there as well to to another iteration, especially in a salary cap league where, you know, um, <laughs> these guys are going to cost you money for a while, especially if you sign them long-term like Altidore and Bradley. So stuff like getting Bradley to degree, agree to a TAM deal, um, th- things like that, I think, uh, I think Ali Curtis has done a good job of moving this team forward. It's just they they have to take that next step, right? And I think 
a lot of that next step comes with, you know, potentially getting in some younger players, allowing them to take a bigger role on this team. And and that's what you would expect in the evolution of any club. So given Chris Harmon's preferred system, how much of an overhaul you think Curtis will have to oversee? I mean, now that Manning and Curtis have been locked up, extended, um, what is the number one priority for this club? Uh, I don't think they're going to need too much of an overhaul, just in the sense that, you know, you look at some of these guys and, and if he wants to play a bit of a, a higher pressing system, a lot of these guys are already pretty good at that. You look at Osorio, Delgado, a guy like Michael Bradley, who he might want to play further up the field this year. He's already mentioned. These are guys who, uh, even a Chris Mavinga, these are guys who are well suited to that sort of system. So from, from that sense, I don't think they need to overhaul the team too, too much. Um, the, the two main places where they definitely still need help, of course, is at center back. They're just not deep enough there. There's questions about Omar Gonzalez in terms of you know, his speed and and his ability to play a full season. So I think that's something that they have to even, even you know, that's probably their top priority essentially. But the other the other thing is goals, of course. They didn't score very much last year. It was the, the lowest output of, of Greg Vanny's career in a full season um, in terms of Toronto FC. So it's been a while since they haven't scored that much. And, you know, part of that could be internal. We know Josie Altidore had a very off year last year. Who knows what that looks for this year, but we know the club's trying to bring in another goal scorer. So those are the two ways I think this club could, you know, kind of go to that next level. But right now, I think they're at least in a solid position, both in terms of playing Chris Armis's system and in that Eastern Conference. Um, well, on Altador, Mitch, simple question, possibly difficult answer. Um, and there've been a lot of confusing and or mixed messages from all parties in this, but what has been going on with Josie Altador for the past year? Uh, cause it, it, it seems like, you know, on one point he seems committed, then on the other it's, it's uncertain. So, so what's your take on the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to know exactly, um, what, what's going on, you know, publicly and behind the scenes. Look, I think Toronto FC did, at least consider moving him this off season. And I think that's, you know, that's what you have to do as a club with any player. You know, you look, you look to see if there's interest in the player, if it makes sense for the club. Um, you know, Greg Berhalter was obviously, uh, obviously didn't do Toronto see any favors in terms of revealing that that was the case. But uh, I, I do think that, you know, there, there's still, a, I don't think that the relationship has, has dissolved to the point that, that maybe some of the su- suggestions from ESPN or, or any other outlets have, you know, considered. I think that there's still there's still a place for Josie Altador on this side, and I think early indications are, are that Chris Armis and him get along well. Chris Armis is is in here challenging him a lot, and, and believes that Altador can get back to, you know, the player that he was. Honestly, you know, pre last season, I know there's been a lot of injuries, but even 2019, Josie Altador was a really really good player um, when he was on the field, and him and Pozuelo had you know, a really solid connection as well, right from the first game they played together. So if he can get back to there, then, you know, these conversations that have been having for the past couple of years will, will go away a little bit. But obviously right now, who knows with, with Josie going into this year. There have been several reports uh, that TFC have been targeting multiple players um, in the forward range, uh, specifically mm-hmm. Bori. Does TFC need a new number nine? It's interesting, right? Because you have Altador there, um, you have Io Akinola, who obviously had a great breakout season and was excellent last year. Um, and then Peruzza and Mullins as well for depth. So, look, I think they need another goal scorer, whether that's a number nine, whether that comes in attacking midfielder, a wider player would make sense as well. They, they just need someone else on the team who, if Altidore is hurt or not going, if, if Io Akinola is not playing, 
Um, there's, there's just not enough players on this team who are able to put the ball in the back of the net with any sort of consistency. So uh, I think that that's, that's the main priority, whether that comes as a number nine or a bit of a wider player, um, that, that remains to be seen. Perhaps in the same sort of vein, Mitch, um, Curtis has preached about wanting to give the club's academy and or younger players a chance. Now, we saw that last year with the likes of, say, Jaden Nelson. Uh, Ralph Brizo got a run of games in, in the middle of the season as well. With the likes of Julian Dunn coming back after an impressive loan spell with Valor uh, and players like him, do you expect TFC's young Canadians to feature somewhat more regularly this season? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's it's going to be a busy start to the season for Toronto FC between, you know, what they will be hoping will be a, a long run in the CONCACAF Champions League and, of course, uh, MLS starting up as well. So, you know, I, I almost wonder if that's part of why they haven't made any major moves so far as they're still trying to figure out exactly what they have in some of these young guys like a Jaden Nelson, like even a Jaquil Marshall-Ruti and a Ralph Frizo. You know, they're trying to find out what these guys can bring to the table. And then, you know, if they surprise them early on in the season and they're great, then maybe that changes what they need to go out and, and acquire in terms of a designated player. So um, I, I do think that is a priority for the side. And, you know, I think Chris Armas coming in fresh and, and having, you know, maybe not some of those prior relationships that, that Greg Vanny would have built up with some of those veterans. I think that that helps these young guys and maybe gives them an opportunity to, to take that next step and, and get more playing time, which, a lot of these guys are right on the cusp, right? Like they're they're right there, and I think they just really need that playing time to show that uh, they can do it at this level. Uh, Mitch, how do you expect TFC will do this year? Um, it's it's, it's a little bit tough to say because, as we said, we do anticipate them bringing in a designated player at some point, and that might change my projections a little bit. But given the current roster, I mean, I don't think they're going to be pushing up you know the top of the league like they were last season. Um, they're still a decent side. They, their only major loss, of course, was Pablo Piatti, um, who's you know a good player in his own right. But given Armas's system and, and everything else, I think they can probably recover from that loss. So, you know, I'd put them as solidly in the playoffs, but I don't think they're going to be pushing near the top of the league as the, as they were last season. I think um, it's it's going to be a bit of a struggle early on, and then hopefully you can get that designated player in and. And that changes things going into the second half of the season and, and pushing towards playoffs. Um, new Toronto FC kids came out. Uh, your initial thoughts? I like them. I mean, I, I like the color scheme. Anytime you can get the the black and the red together, I think that's a uh, that's a good combination. And yeah, I mean, they're they're not over complicated, but they're not too simple either. So I think they're they're probably an improvement on uh, the recent years. Yeah, I feel like the TFC kits the, the last couple of years have been very hit and miss, whereas I feel like up until 2017, they've been very, very uh, spot on, I guess. Uh, so yeah, kind of nice to see maybe a bit more of a transition back to what they used to be. Mitch, once again, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, listeners, you can catch him on Footy Talks, on Waking the Red, and Darby Magazine, and all these other publications. He's everywhere, so you, you can definitely find Mitch's work wherever you go. Mitch, thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. That will do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening once again. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and leave us a nice review. Tell us what we're doing well, what we're not doing well and could improve on. That's always helpful, too. For Thomas Neff, I am Peter Galindo. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will talk to you next week.